1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kyle. Good morning, everybody. Um, want to invite our children to Children's Church, and um, we will start with a word of prayer before we uh, turn to God's Word. So join me in prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, it is by grace and grace alone, by your good favor, by your love for us, which we haven't earned, that we do any of this. So Lord, as we read through Colossians this morning about uh, putting away envy and malice and anger and wrath and all of those things. Lord, we put them away because they're canceled, because Jesus has dealt with them. And therefore, we can set those things aside. They're no longer our masters. And so what great news. Thank you for the chance for us to gather and to sing this way, to sing our, our praises to you and our thanks to you for what you've done for us. Father, this morning, we lift up our brother Bob Kempel, and we ask that you continue to heal him and strengthen him. Uh, Lord, uh, the, um, the good news is that he's, he's up and walking and, and going through some physical therapy. Lord, we pray for the physical therapists that they would use uh, wisdom and care with our brother and that Bob would be strengthened and, and ready to come and join us in worship again to, to um, join our, our joy, but also to share his joy in the Lord with us that we might rejoice together. Have mercy on him. And uh, Lord, we pray for Judy that you grant her wisdom and strength while Bob's in the hospital and just uh, heal uh, Bob's body and, and restore them. And we're so grateful for them to be part of our congregation for uh, the joy that they are to us. And uh, we want your richest blessing on them. So we pray to you, Lord. And Father, now that we turn to uh, your word, I pray that you would be with us, that you would, um, through your spirit, help us to see and to understand what you have for us this morning. Open your word to us, we ask, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Bizet, George Bizet uh, wrote an opera called Carmen. And uh, Carmen is an opera that's set in Spain. And Carmen is the star, the lead of it, of course. She's a, a gypsy woman who works in a cigarette factory. She's uh, self-willed. 
um, kind of flamboyant, beautiful, flirtatious. That's who Carmen is. When it comes to the, um, the opera, though, the overture to the opera is one of the most famous pieces of classical music. You have heard it. Why don't you go ahead and play it kind of low in the background there while I describe it a little bit. So what an overture is, is it's a piece of music that introduces either an opera or a, a symphony or something like that. And it doesn't always work out that they're connected. So for example, one of the most famous um, overtures is the overture to the magic flute by Mozart. But those musical themes don't ever show up again in the opera. It's that's just kind of the introduction piece. So I think the ones that work the best are like this one, which is Bizet has written this. And what he's doing is he's calling up pieces of music that are going to come up in the opera again. So the, the overture is inviting the audience, come in, sit down, get settled. And then as you're settling and you're trying to get used to the, the situation you're in and get your mindset, this music is playing. And the brilliance of, of Bizet's introduction to Carmen this way is, like I said, there's these themes are going to show up again. So this little bit that's playing now, that's going to show up in, in Act 4 when the crowd is singing and welcoming in the bullfighters into the arena. They're, they're coming in, and this is a song that's playing. And then Edwards Air Force Base Air Show does a sonic boom for us. Then we move to this. This part is called uh, the uh, troubadour. It's one of the most famous pieces of music. This is going to come up again. There's a man who's going to sing this by himself later on. But we're getting introduced to it now. And then the way the overture ends is with this kind of haunting music. It's, it's in a minor key. It's, it's a, a beautiful cello song over top of these throbbing strings. And that's Carmen's theme. And that theme is going to show up a number of times throughout the opera, usually at very key moments. You'll hear it, it, hear it come back in. And the other thing that it, it kind of hints at is this idea of fate. Uh, because that's what Carmen is about. She's a flirt and she gets into trouble and she winds up dying. It's a tragedy. So spoiler alert, she dies at the end. Um, but <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's old, okay? It's been around for a while. But what's neat is, is when, when um, Bizet does this, the music is so beautiful, you don't hear it the first time and get distracted because of how beautiful it is. You're distracted now during the overture, which is okay. So that when that music comes back in, you already have a taste for it. You already have a connection to it. You listen and you go, oh yeah, this is nice. And you can follow along with the story. So that, that's what an overture does. That's what it's supposed to do for you. So you go ahead and kill that. This is, well, let it play for a sec. This is Carmen's theme. Go ahead and play it again. You hear how it's kind of mysterious and, and a little dark and that, that's Carmen's theme which shows up a number of times throughout the opera. Okay, go ahead and, and kill that. So. What we're going to see this morning is we're going to look at Hannah's prayer, but Hannah's prayer is actually an overture to the kingdom. I think Hannah's prayer might have been written much later in her life, but our author put it here. Now, why do I say it was probably written later in her life? Because of a couple of things. First of all, in it, she says, the baron has borne seven. At this point, the baron has borne one. She's born Samuel. But what we'll see next week is she has six more kids. So when she says the Baron has born seven, that will have happened later in her life. The other thing is the way that the uh, prayer ends is she talks about the Lord's king and his anointed. Now, remember where we're at in redemptive history. There is no king in Israel. That's the problem. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. 
So the king hasn't shown up yet. He shows up much later, and we don't know when Hannah died, but I'm assuming much later in her life, she may have been around to see Saul be installed as king. And so she begins to see this, this kingdom. So I think this may have been written later in her life. But the important part is, why did our author put it here? And it's because it's that overture. It's introducing themes to us that are going to show up again, not just later in the book, but throughout redemptive history. All that God is doing, he's going to be again to happen here. It's an introduction to the kingdom of God. And who better to write it? Remember from last week? Poor Hannah. She's married. She's unable to have children. Her husband marries another. She starts having kids and makes fun of Hannah, teasing her. And Hannah goes on for years just being tormented by this woman. And finally, she cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers and opens her womb, and she has Samuel. And what does this wonderful woman do with the, this beautiful gift that she's begged the Lord for? Immediately, she, she well, almost immediately, she, she raises the child for about three or four years, weans him, and then hands him back to the Lord, drops him off at the temple, and leaves him there. She gives the gift back to the giver. But what she says now, th this prayer that we're going to look at this morning, is going to set the context for the book of 1 Samuel. Actually, I would argue for 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, on through to the New Testament. So what I want to do is just kind of look through her, her um, prayer this morning, see what she's talking about. And then at the end, I want to go back and pick up those themes and say, how do those themes that she introduced in the overture show up later in the opera we call redemptive history? So that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. We'll take a look at this. So her, uh, Hannah's kingdom overture goes in three movements. Uh, first, she talks about holy is the Lord. And then she says the Lord opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. And then finally, the Lord will judge. So she starts from very personal, her, her praise to God, to a more general how he runs the world, to the end of the world, how he's going to judge everything. That's the trajectory of her, her message. So let's take a look at the first part, verses one through three, holy is the Lord. She starts with, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derives my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So it starts very personally for her. She has had an experience with God who has lifted her up from such a humble, such a, a miserable position and put her in an exalted place. She, he has lifted her from the ground, and so she, her heart exalts in the Lord. What else can she do but praise him? Her horn, the horn is a symbol of strength in the, in the Hebrew um, poetry. Imagine um, seeing a, bully, a goat fighting. They've got these horns. That, that horn is that symbol of their strength. So what she's saying is, my strength exalts in the Lord. Where, where else can it go? It's not something I have. It's not something I was just born with. And then she says, my mouth derides my enemy. She's not like dissing them particularly. What she's saying is it's almost a sense of correcting. My, my mouth rebukes my enemies. It derides them. You guys, you've been wrong. Look what the Lord has done for me. And she rejoices in his salvation because what else was she going to rejoice in? She couldn't rejoice in her own strength and her own power. She had none. So that's her, her beginning. And then she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Remember the context, right? She's in Israel, which is this tiny little nation that's in the middle of all of these pagan nations. Um, they have been established by the Lord. They've been ruled by the judges. All around them are polytheists. The, the um, Moabites, the Babylonians to the north, the Egyptians to the south, 
all the nations around them worship multiple gods, many, many gods. And yet she says, as she surveys this situation, she looks around, she says, there's none like our God. None of those can add up. None of them can withstand. None of them can line up to who our God is. As mighty and powerful as they look, as, as many people as worship Baal or Ashtoreth, they're nothing compared to the true and the living God. So in the midst of all of this, and by the way, don't forget that in the book of Judges, those false gods begin to creep into Israel. They begin to worship false gods there too. But this woman, this, this woman who has been on the margins of society stands up and says, oh, they're nothing. They, they promise everything, but they're nothing. There is none holy like our God. Our God is unique. That's that picture that God gives us from the book of Genesis when he creates the world just by speaking. All of the things that he creates were wound up as being worshipped as gods. The sun and the moon, they don't even get a name. They're just a bright light and a dim light because Yahweh is king over all of those. He is supreme over all of that. Your God is the God of the hills? Great, my God made the hills. Your God is the God of the harvest? Fine, my God parted the water so that there would be a harvest. There is none like Yahweh. He is great above all. So this is where her heart goes. He has done this for me. And then she begins to rebuke her, her uh, opponents. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Giving us a hint to the, the, how this is going to end. So her beginning is, our, my God, the God of Israel, the true and the living God is supreme. He's holy. He is powerful. He is over all else. And that's where she starts. Then she um, goes to the, the um, rebuking the enemies, if you will. The Lord opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. And that's where she goes with the, her prayer. The bows of the mighty are broken. The bow is, is the symbol of strength in this day. A ranged weapon, you can't get to it. As you're charging up and the ranged weapon is, is showering down arrows on you, the, all you can do is protect yourself, hide yourself until they've spent their arrows and then you can charge. The bow at the time was a, a powerful weapon. It was something that was hard to defeat, but the bows of the, the mighty are broken. God says, yeah, that's cute. That goes up in the air, not even close. I'm over that. I can, I can break that bow at any time, but the feeble bind on strength. So the ones who are trusting in their might and their power, their strength, their strength is broken, but the feeble are the ones who get the real strength. It's a reversal. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. The, the full doesn't necessarily mean I just ate dinner. It's full in the sense of who have everything come into them in life, the comfortable. They have the house. They have the job. They have the retirement. They have the money. They have, you know, the eat out every week and, and those kind of things. The full, those who've been satisfied in what the world has given them, what they've earned, they're now renting themselves out for bread. Why? Because those things can't ultimately satisfy. They will not last. That, that's the message is, is they've eaten their fill and now they're done. And now what have they got? What their hope was in is gone. So those who have been full, who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry, well, they've ceased to hunger. They have found satisfaction in something beyond just, do I get the best meal? They found something more satisfying. And that is who God is. God will provide for them. I just read this week the story of Elijah where he confronts the prophets of Baal and then runs off into the desert, God says, go sit by the book of Chenereth. You need to chill out for a while. I'll bring, I'll have uh, ravens come and feed you. 
birds of the air bringing bread and meat. This is, this is a picture of the hungry being fed, the, the needy being met by God. Um, not always right away, right? She suffered for quite a while without a child before the Lord met her, but the promise comes, he will do that. And then what she says about, probably about herself, the barren have born, has born seven. You want an example of how God provides? You want to see somebody who, who or you want to see an example of God providing for the, the poor, the weak, for the one who's marginalized? Look at me. I now have seven children. I didn't before, but the Lord gave me, he opened up my womb. He remembered me. The barren has born, or the barren is born seven, but she who had many children is forlorn. I don't think that this is necessarily speaking of Penaniah, her uh, rival wife. But it is looking and saying, so those who are satisfied in those things, those who think that they've got those things by their own power, by their own doing, well, they're going to be forlorn. What happens when your child grows up and dies? Then what do you do? If you've put all of your hope in your children, if you've put everything on your children, first of all, it's not fair to them. They can't bear that weight. But if you put it all on them and they don't make it, they don't live up to your expectations or they, they pass away unexpected, unexpectedly or something, you're forlorn. You have nothing to fall back on. But Hannah says, I didn't start with children. I didn't start with my hope in my children. I started with my hope in God, and he gave me children. And so I can trust him to him. This is how she could take Samuel to the temple and say, hey, Eli, he's staying here. Because her hope, first and foremost, was in Yahweh, not in having children. The children was the blessing that came after that. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Why do people die? Well, we've diagnosed numerous diseases and, and, and problems and illnesses and car accidents and plane crashes and drownings and tidal waves and all of that. Why do people die? Because the Lord kills and brings to life. These are in God's hands. He, he does that. That concept of Sheol, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Sheol is just an Old Testament setting. That is just the place of the dead. This is where dead people go. It's not necessarily heaven. It's not necessarily hell. Not really clear. Good people go to Sheol. Bad people go to Sheol. Uh, bodies go to Sheol. Souls go to Sheol. It's just the idea of death. So he, he brings down to death and he makes alive again. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Just kind of summing up what she's been saying. Why is it that Peniah had children? Because God gave them to her. Why is it that Hannah didn't? Because God didn't give them to her. That's why God is in charge of these things, but he's good. Remember, there's an unholy like our God. He's a good God. He raises up the poor from the dust and he leaves the, leads, uh, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. So the poor sit in the dust in an ash heap, but at the right time and in the right way, God's going to take them and lift them up and he's going to put them with the princes and seat them, not in ashes and, and dust, but on a seat of honor. And, and that isn't the immediate always where it starts. It starts on an ash heap. It starts on, on, a, on a pile of dust before it gets to the, uh, the seat of honor. And then she ends this section by saying, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. I think this is a beautiful, poetic way of saying not this is what the earth is like. There's these pillars that God created, and then he set this flat plate on top of it called the world, and then he put a dome over that. I don't think that's really actually biblical geography. I think it's much more complicated. This is more of a, a picturesque way of saying the pillars of the world, kind of like 
um, the pillar of society. That's, that's not a physical pillar, that's somebody who's very important. So the very important things, the structure of society, the structure of how the world works, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has established this world to function the way it functions. It is his, and on them he has set the world. He set these principles in place, these concepts, these ideas that the world is resting on. They're eternal, they're permanent, they're long-lasting. As the world turns and changes and, and, and people come and go, the pillars of the earth are still sitting there. They're the Lord's. And that's I say that because she doesn't then go on to a discussion of geography. This is actually finishing a discussion of social practices and how the mighty rise and the weak fall. And so that's why I think he's, she's talking here not about the geography of the earth, but rather talking about the, the how society works. So she's gone from something very personal to something very broad. This is generally how God rules the world. And then she comes to the end. The Lord will judge, verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Who is it that's going to rise up at the last day and judge the world? That's coming. So all of the things that have been going on, everything that Hannah has endured, none of it has been outside of God's sight. He will guard the feet of the uh, faithful ones. Those who trust in Yahweh, he will guard them and he will guide them. Where are those wicked people, those opposition, those, those who oppose the Lord? Where is their end? In darkness. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of being cut off, being cast away, being excluded. Why? Because it's not by the might of man. If God has established the pillars of the earth, if, if the earth turns in the hands of God, if it goes the way he, he has determined it is, then why on earth would man think, oh, well, I'm strong enough, I can get away with this. I can overcome what the Lord is doing. I will do what I want my way, and nothing's going to come of that. That that just won't work. It's not by might that man shall prevail. You're not going to do it because you try really hard. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Shall be. She's still looking into the future. She's still saying it's coming. There's a day coming when the Lord's adversaries will be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Now we need the uh, sonic boom. I got to call the base. They got the timing on that wrong. That's when we needed that sonic boom to happen. That would have been great. Uh, he thunders. Uh, he will thunder in heaven against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will judge Israel. He will judge the Middle East. He will judge Asia, he will judge Europe, he will judge America. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The whole planet is in his hands and it's coming. And then something very curious at the end, and he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this is part of that thing that I said is, is kind of echoing into the future. It's something that's coming. But what he, what Hannah is saying here is that God gives strength to his king, not just any king, not, not anybody who happens to occupy the seat of the king of Israel or the king of Judah. He will give strength to his king. And then the, the way Hebrew poetry works is it's kind of, it mirrors itself. It repeats itself with different words and exalt the horn of his anointed. So the horn, that strength of the king, he will exalt. The power of the king is what he will hold up. And he calls the king his anointed. 
that's a theme that we're going to get into much later in the book. David is going to refer to Saul as God's anointed repeatedly. So that idea of anointing, of being anointed, is talking about a kingly office. I don't want to jump ahead. I want to preach that sermon, but let's not preach that sermon yet. Let's stick with this. So that's that's who he's talking about is, is his king, is his anointed. And that's that's her prayer. And then verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So here's this little boy. I can't imagine what he would be doing in the temple, but he's ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest, a, a five-year-old, a six-year-old toddling around the, the temple here, go take this incense and put it over there or something. I, I'm not sure what he's doing, but he's doing that from a young age. What we're going to see next after this is the exact opposite of him ministering in the presence of uh, Eli. What we're going to see next is Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they're really bad dudes. These are the people who are going to be opposed. So as we hear the, the, the overture of um, Hannah's prayer here, what we're going to do is, is see it almost immediately fulfilled. We're going to see uh, Hophni and Phinehas, who are abusing the sacrificial system, fattening themselves, and the Lord is going to judge them. It's almost immediate that this gets fulfilled. The Lord is going to judge these guys. Why? Because he is holy, and they are abusing his sacrifice. They're turning his sacrifice into something that's going to feed their belly. The full are going to wind up hungry. So this is, this is like this almost immediate echo, this almost immediate fulfillment of it. The Lord is going to oppose the proud and lift up the humble. Hophni and Phinehas are going to be killed. They're going to be judged. They're going to be executed. They're going to be humbled. And this little boy, this little kid who's been just kind of hobbling around the, the temple, he's going to be exalted. Almost immediately, this is going to happen. But let's look a little bit broader. Let's go a little further with these. How do these unfold in the idea of the kingdom of God? So first of all, the Lord is holy. He, he's a holy God. The response of God's people is worship. That's what God's people primarily, first and foremost, do is we see who God is, we recognize what he's done for us, and the response of our heart is, our God is great. He is holy. He is majestic. He is above all. There is no God that can rival him. So Hannah's pictured this for us very early, and this is just the recurring theme throughout God's people. And it's how you distinguish between God's people. As you read through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you'll see People who are part of Israel, kings and, and important people in Israel, even priests, who are horrible people. And they don't worship the Lord. They don't care about him. They want, they use the Lord to get what they want. But you'll see all these other humble people, these, these smaller people who do worship the Lord. That's the theme. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Why? Because it's a satisfaction in who God is. Then this idea that the Lord opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. Boy, is that a recurring theme. We're going to see it, like I said, with Phinehas and, and uh, uh, Hopney and Phinehas almost immediately. We'll see it in Saul. Saul starts out very humble. Man, this, is, this might be it. This might work. But pretty soon he gets pretty full of that king office. He he's, thinks he's got it all. He can do whatever he wants. And so he's humble. Then we see David rise up. And yeah, David, he's great. He starts off as a shepherd. He didn't, they didn't even think enough of him to call him in when they said, bring the sons in so we can figure out which one of them's king. Well, it can't be David. But David winds up being a king. And, and that story, oh, this is great. This is going to be so good until it's not. 
until Bathsheba, the, queen, uh, the wife of Uriah, and then trouble is announced. And then Solomon, Solomon starts with such promise. God comes and speaks to him in the night and says, Solomon, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon could have said, Lord, slay all my enemies. Everybody who's opposed to him, kill him right on this moment. He could have said, Lord, shower me with all the riches in the world. He could have said, expand my kingdom to the ends of the earth. And instead, what he says is, Lord, who can lead your people? I need wisdom. You need to help me understand this. Boy, you're hopeful there, aren't you? It's, it's going to go great. And then you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it doesn't go so great because he does indulge in all those things anyway. And then after that, it's just downhill. He, he tears the kingdom apart after uh, Solomon's death, and the kings just are a roller coaster ride. It makes me a little seasick when I'm reading through Kings and Chronicles because it's so up and down. But that's going to continue on until the exile. And then coming back from the exile, there's never another king on the throne. Things just never go right. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus shows up. Is Jesus not the ultimate reversal of all of this? Listen to this. This is from Philippians chapter 2. It's a little bit long of a reading, but listen to this in light of God humbles the proud and lifts up the humble. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee may bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. That is the ultimate reversal. Though he existed in the form of God, God the Son, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit, reigning and ruling in heaven, surrounded by myriads of angels who announce all day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He humbles himself and he comes to earth. He takes on a human nature and not just any human nature. He comes not as a reigning king or, or, or a, um, a military uh, general. He comes as a servant. And not only as a servant, but a servant who's humbled to death and not just any death. He didn't choke on a chicken bone. He was crucified, the most humiliating death. That's how far he has come. And what happens after that? God raises him up and seats him at the right hand in heaven. It's just the, the reversal there is incredible. God's echoing throughout history, picturing this reversal, this humble being exalted and the exalted being humbled. And, and we don't catch it. We don't, we don't get it right away. But this is, comes to its fullness, its, its full echo, its full presentation. The solo in the opera is Jesus Christ. And this is also in line with Jesus' teaching. Didn't he tell us that? For example, Mark chapter 9, he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the nature of the kingdom, what, what Hannah has pictured for us here is the nature of the kingdom is it's an upside-down kingdom. 
You want to be the greatest? You want to be the most important? Serve everybody. You want to be the leader, the top of the heap, the most significant thing going on? You have to just make yourself as low as possible. Consider others as more important as yourself. That's the nature of the kingdom. We've heard this echo. We've heard this refrain in the overture. And when Jesus comes, we go, yes, that's what it was. That's what we were hearing. Both Peter and John, or Peter and James both say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Does anybody here need more grace? I, I would love to have more grace. Stop being proud and be more humble, and God will stop opposing you and give you more grace. It's an upside-down kingdom. That's what she's pictured for us. That's what she's promised. And then the last part, the Lord will judge. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. It's coming. Jesus came. He said, the first time I didn't come to judge, but to save. When he returns, when he comes back, he will come with his angels in power, and he will bring judgment. He will say to the, the goats on his left, be gone from me. And to the sheep on his right, come into my father's kingdom. We're, we're waiting for that day. We've heard that echo. We've heard that, that musical theme in the overture. We've heard Jesus introduce it. It's come up again. Can you imagine what, would it, what that trumpet blast is going to sound like on that last day? To some people, it's going to be terrifying. It will be the worst possible news. They will be exposed in all of the sins that they have ever committed and have no way to cover. But for us, that trumpet blast will be the announcement of our Savior, the coming of the true king, the real king. He will come and he will judge the ends of the earth. So how is it that we can endure? Remember what Peter's message was for us in both First and Second Peter was, was hope in the exile. And how do we reconform to the image of Christ? Is how can we do this? Is we understand nobody gets away with it. When you, when you see a news story where somebody gets off on a technicality or somebody doesn't get arrested or somebody does get arrested who shouldn't, and that, that burning sense within you of that's unjust. That's right. That's unjust. And nobody gets away with it. There's a day coming when that will happen. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will thunder from heaven against his adversaries. So this is the kingdom themes. These are the themes that are going to come up over and over again as we go through, especially for Samuel. But as you're reading through the Bible in a year, as, you, as you're going through your Bible reading plans, be listening for that. Be watching. What is the kingdom of God like? What does the kingdom of God look like? How, how does it feel when I read it in the scriptures? Why is this story in the Bible? Why is, why is this bad dude getting away with it? I just read the story of Ahab. You know, you get, you, you're reading through and you go, Omri, oh yeah, and then Ahab. Oh man, why Ahab? Because God's picturing for us. He's, he's putting that phrase, that musical phrase into the opera so that we know how it's going to end. That's where we're heading. That's where we're going. That's the good news. Next week, we get the bad news. Next week, we got to deal with not just Hop, uh, uh, and, Hopney and Phineas, but their sin and what they're up to. So thank you, Hannah. It was a beautiful song. The overture is over. The opera now begins. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, uh, thank you for your kingdom. Um, coming into this world. Lord, you spread this kingdom not by military might, not by commissioning your followers to grab swords and take over um, uh, strongholds and, and um, 
centers of commerce and, and those kind of things. But Lord, you send us out like sheep among wolves and you tell us to go and preach the gospel, to be your witnesses. And Lord, it's, it's just such in line with the way that your kingdom is, so upside down. We don't go by, we don't spread your kingdom by conquering, but by serving. And so, Lord, would you continue that prayer or that uh, that purpose in us? Would you make your church in America servants of all as sheep among wolves? Would you lead us in your kingdom? And Lord, we pray as you taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you answer the prayer you taught us to pray? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.